0: Well, good morning, church family. It's good to see everybody. Did you all have a good Thanksgiving? Good. I, I love Thanksgiving. In the spirit of Thanksgiving, uh, I just want to say I'm really grateful to be the pastor here. Um, I'm really grateful for each one of you. I'm grateful that uh, you chose to come here this morning, and I hear your voices behind me as I'm singing. Uh, it's encouraging, and it, it, it fills me with such warmth and, uh, and your love and your care Uh, for myself and my family. I just want to say I'm grateful for for all of you. Um, I'm also really grateful for good Thanksgiving food. Uh, Did y'all eat some good food this past week? Man, I wish I ate stuffing more often throughout the year. Man, it's just, why is it only for Thanksgiving? Uh, You know, I would not consider myself a cook. I don't cook that often. I I cook from time to time. But uh, a few years ago, I became interested um, and learning how to prepare my 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 dad's Thanksgiving turkey, uh, and also his turkey noodle soup. Now, I've never seen uh, anyone prepare a turkey quite like my dad. He has a, kind of his own unique process. Uh, he brines it, you know, the, the day before, and he makes all kinds of spices to go on the brine and prepares it, and he soaks it overnight with, with ice in the garage uh, and then when he uh, bakes it, uh, he uses aluminum foil at different parts uh, in the oven and he also turns the temperature up and then he turns it down. It's, a, it's quite a complicated process. Uh, and I realized that uh, my other two brothers, they don't really cook either. Uh, and if I did not learn how to cook this really extravagant turkey, that this recipe would die out in the family. So I, I took it upon myself and I asked my dad, could you teach me? Show me, show me your ways, oh wise one, with this turkey. And he, you know, showed me the recipe. And, and over time, I've learned to cook his turkey. I've also learned to cook his turkey noodle soup, uh, which my own family would tell you I have yet to master. <laughs> that one's still a work in progress. But the reality is I had to learn how to do this, otherwise it would die out within my family. And the, the reality is every tradition you have every belief you have, is, it is in danger of dying out in the next generation unless you pass it on. And it's almost trivial to compare it to Turkey, but we need to be intentional about passing on our faith to the next generation. Because if we don't, it'll stop with you. We have to be intentional about this process. So what are you intentionally doing to pass on your faith and what God has done in your life. The people of God, they needed to take seriously the call to pass on their faith to the next generation. This morning, uh, I'm really formally concluding our series that we've been in in the Ten Commandments today, how ancient laws lead to a flourishing life. In the book of Deuteronomy, the generation that saw God do all the miracles and bring his people out of Egypt, they, uh, almost all of them have passed away. And Moses himself is about to die as well. The people are about to go from wandering in the wilderness to actually entering the promised land. And Moses reminds them of their redemption. He reiterates the Ten Commandments which we've gone through. And then we get to chapter 6, which is kind of their call to pass all of this on. And I would invite you to uh, open in your Bibles this morning, because we're going to jump around Deuteronomy 6, uh, in the sermon today. We're going to begin in verses 1 through 4. It says, These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live, by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. We can pause there. How are we going to pass on our faith to the next generation, to our own kids and grandkids, and also the generation coming up in the church of Jesus Christ? This generation of Deuteronomy, they had to think about that, and we're going to look at three things this morning, the call, the danger, and the strategy. So the, the first thing we're going to look at is the call, and the call, the call to action here is complete and total loving commitment and obedience to God. You heard that great command that Jesus told us. This is the greatest command out of, out of all the commands in the Old Testament. This is the greatest. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. Now, the Hebrew word for heart, uh, it means your, your inner being. This is really in what we think of as heart and mind. Uh Who you are on the inside. The commandments of God are not sterile. They're not kind of just, they're not just written in stone. They're not legalistic. It is to be completely personal to who you are on the inside. Overwhelming your entire consciousness. Your mind, your emotions, your thoughts. Going completely over the top with your love for God. We ought to be accused of being radical for God to do whatever it takes to keep our zeal and passion for the Lord. So that's the heart, your total inner being. Then it says the, the word soul. Now in Hebrew, this is the word nefesh. Uh, and it's a word that actually refers to the entire person. A living, uh, it's used for living being, beings. And so it reminds us of what Paul says in Romans 12, that we offer our bodies, our, our entire selves, as a living sacrifice. How did you offer a sacrifice? By killing it, putting it on the altar, and burning it to God. That's the image that Paul uses. Offer your entire body, your entire life, as a sacrifice of worship to God. So we're to love God with our inner beings and the outer being. Internally, in how we feel and how we think, but also externally in all that we do, all that we say, all that we spend our time on. We are to love the Lord our God. And then the next word that's used is might or strength. It's often translated. However, the earliest Jewish versions translated this as all of your substance or all of your possessions. Daniel, the scholar Daniel Bloch says, here its meaning is best captured by a word like resources, which includes physical strength, but also economic or social strength. And it may extend to physical things an Israelite owned, tools, livestock, a house, and the like. In other words, everything in my life, everything God has given me, everything at, at my disposal is empo- is employed and called to love God. All my money, everything I own, every every book, every piece of furniture, every room in my house, my car—it's all God's and should be employed in my call to love God. It's like the hymn says: "Take take my silver." And my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. We are to be all in for loving God, internally in how we think, externally in what we do, and with all the resources, everything that God has given us. This is basic and foundational, but nothing is more contagious than passionate commitment. Some people do a great job of passing on their love for their sports teams. Why in the world am I a Buffalo Bills fan? I grew up in Michigan. I didn't grow up in Buffalo. They're not a great team. They lost four straight Super Bowls in the 90s and they haven't been that good ever since. We've been hoping and waiting. Why am I a fan? Because I married into my wife's family and they are passionately committed to the bills you might have heard of them heard of them as the bills mafia it's like a real thing they they are passionate about the bills you you marry into this family you can't not help but start loving the bills because they have the bills memorabilia they sing the bills shout song at the top of their lungs they watch every game they go to a game in person at least once every year And much of the family conversation, even around the holidays this past week, oh, how about that Bills game? What did you think about the firing? And on and on and on. It's all about the Bills. My kids are already growing up to love the Bills. Why? Because their family is passionately committed to them. And I might just say, let's not be better at passing on our love for sports than we are at passing on our love for God. Let our zeal and passion for the Lord and His church and His kingdom be the top passionate commitment of our lives. Following God and passing our faith on requires nothing less than total and absolute commitment to loving God and obeying Him completely in all things. But friend, let me remind you that God is not asking you to do anything He has not done for you Himself. He has given you everything that he is especially in the new covenant he has given us himself through his son jesus christ he is totally committed to loving you redeeming you saving you providing for you caring for you god loves you with an everlasting love his love never fails we always love because he first loved us and redeemed us so the first thing we do is respond to this call This is the call to passionately love God above all things. The second thing we're going to do to pass on our faith is we're going to be aware of the dangers. Even without the dangers, this God requires our total commitment, which uh, is enough uh, work in itself. Difficult. But on the way to kingdom come, we must pass through many dangers, toils, and snares. Deuteronomy 6 actually before I get there, but as you're looking at that, you'll see that the promised land had many things in it which could potentially turn away this generation from a completely committed relationship with God. And the scholar Christopher Wright, he details three dangers they are about to face, and the the first is the danger of, of affluence. Now, this is ironic because God says, I'm going to give you this land that's flowing with milk and honey. He wanted his people to be provided for, right? He wanted to bless them. This land and its abundance was God's gift to them. But us humans, we're very good at turning God's gifts into idols. We're very good at turning the material things of the world into into little gods. And so if you look at verse 10, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When there is abundance, there is the temptation to forget the Lord because you have what you need. Jesus talked about this in the parable of the sower as well. So we're to be thankful for what we have. We talked about that last week, but be careful that nothing takes away your passionate commitment to Jesus. Don't get consumed by the things of this world. The second danger they're going to face is the danger of worldly influence. Jumping down to verse 14, Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. There's a big danger. They're about to enter this land with other peoples around them who are going to influence them. They worship other gods. They worship idols. And so this, the social influence, the peer influence, the, the idols, the values, the beliefs and practices of the world will influence us and the next generation that's coming up. But we are to be on guard against this, not to adopt the practices, values, and customs of the world. Finally, there is the danger of hardship. Verse 16 says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Now, this is a reference to a story in the wilderness in a place called Massa. Uh, the people were thirsty and they started complaining. They started quarreling with Moses. They even said he wanted, they wanted to stone Moses. And it says they tested the Lord because they, they started saying, is the Lord among us? Is the Lord among us or not? You see, the trials of life are a huge test of our trust in God. Will we continue to trust Him despite the hardships, despite the difficulties? And there's also a tension here, right? Because the Psalms are filled with all kinds of complaints to God. God, why haven't you heard me? feels like you're not here. It feels like when I call, you don't answer. God, where are you? Why do the people continue to press, oppress me? All kinds of things like that. But there's also a tension because almost every Psalm of lament has a turn where they're allowed to express their frustration. They're allowed to express what they're feeling, but it almost always ends with, but I trust in your unfailing love. I trust that you love me. I trust that you are good. I trust that you are for me, and you will not abandon me. So our trials, our tests, we're allowed to express those feelings, but do we still trust in God? That's how we get through the test. We don't need to rejoice at the hardships we face, but we can consider them an aspect of joy, as James says, because they produce perseverance as we pass the test. Do you think the next generation are going to face any of those hardships? And living in Wheaton, Illinois, or the surrounding, affluence, worldly influence, hardships of life? Certainly, right? This world is filled with dangerous toils and snares. So what are we going to do? We're going to talk about a few strategies God gives them. Now, this applies to parents, but it applies to the people of God as a body of believers, as faith covenant church. What are we going to do? Consider a few things. First, they're going to model it. They're going to model it. This is primarily through that passionate commitment to God. Going back to verse 3, Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. So the first, the first thing is we've got to live it ourselves. We've got to model it, be an example to the next generation. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about it constantly. Jumping down to verse 6. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. From morning to evening, traveling, wherever you're going, find ways to talk about the Lord, to talk about His commands, to talk about His love, to tell your kids what you're thankful for, to impress upon them your love for God. The third thing that they uh, did was set visual reminders. Jumping down to verse 8, tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses, <coughs> excuse me, and on your gates. Now, some scholars debate you know, how literal we're supposed to take something like this. Um, but the, the reality is, what we, what we see, what we put in our mind on a regular basis, does have a significant shaping effect to what we think. And what we think about shapes our character. And what, shape, and what our character is, that becomes our life. And so God instructed them, put these visual reminders. And notice how it's at, at, at all levels. The individual, it's on your wrist and forehead. In the family, it's in your house, but it's also in the gates. So from an individual, family, and society, there's a constant visual reminder about our call to love God Put him first. Love him above all things. That is be the constant thing that we see and the constant thing that we talk about. That is the vision of how we're going to pass this on. The next thing we're going to do is we're going to tell them God's story. If you jump down to verse 20, it says, In the future when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord your God has commanded you? Actually, let me pause right there. We are to live in such a way that the next generation and our kids become curious. Why do you live like that? Why are we so much different than my friends at school? Why, why, why do we go to church on December 24th? You know, all, the, all these things. We have to spark a curiosity by our lives. So again, the modeling is most important. But, but the son is going to ask, what about, why do we do these things? And then it says in verse 21, We'll tell him we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. We want our kids to ask questions. Why do we go to church? Why do we put a Christmas tree up? Why do we hang lights? Why do we take communion? Why do we serve? We want to tell them. Because God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save us, redeem us, so that we could be with God forever. He sent us a spirit, and now he's the Lord of the world, and one day he's coming again to restore all things. That's why we do what we do as a family, as a church. It's all because of the gospel. It's all because of what God has done. So find ways to keep telling your kids about God, about God's marvelous deeds. Psalm 145 says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Something that must be passed on continually. And then finally, we're going to tell them why. Beyond what we just said. Sometimes when we command our children this or that thing, I, re- I remember my parents saying, well, because I said so. That's why you're going to do it, which sometimes I think could be a fine response. We're to learn to honor our parents, right? And certainly, if anyone could say something like that, wouldn't it be God, our creator, the king of kings? God, why do I have to do this? Because I said so. I mean, certainly there's an element to that. But God is also so gracious to us. He condescends to our need explanation, not full explanations always, but at least in part. So then if you jump down to verse 24, it says, the, the Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before our God as He has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Friends, don't forget the tagline of this series, Ancient Laws That Lead to Flourishing Life. Why do we obey the commands of God? Well, not only because of the gospel, which should be enough, but also because they're for your good. This is how God designed the world. This is for your flourishing. This is so that you as a person, as a church, and as a society, human beings can flourish because God designed the world this way. And then it says, this will be our righteousness. Now, that is not to earn salvation. Remember, if you remember the Ten Commandments, about the Ten Commandments. These are already saved people. These are already redeemed people. This is about living in covenant with God. So these things, these commands, these are about how to live with God. What did Micah say? What does the Lord require? To live justly, to live rightly, right? To walk humbly with your God. The call is a total Loving commitment and obedience to God. We are to be aware of the dangers that affluence, worldly influence, and hardships will present. What are we going to do as families, as a church? We model it. We talk about it constantly. We're going to let it be the thing our kids see all around them. We're going to tell them God's story and we're going to tell them why we do the things we do.